You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast featuring some of Indiana's most fascinating men and women whose impact has shaped our state, our communities, and us. Join us as we discuss their imprint on our history. Leaders and Legends is brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated, your local veteran business enterprise specializing in public relations, media relations, public outreach, crisis communications, and digital photography. My name is Robert Bain, Principal of Veteran Strategies, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Mayor Greg Ballard, and Communications Director for the Indiana Republican Party. I'm honored to be your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Chris Baggett, who is a Renaissance man in ways that I never really appreciated till I started doing some research. And we're going to talk about, we're not going to talk about castrating pigs because that's something that he does that he does that apparently he learned on YouTube. But we're not going to talk about that cuz that makes me queasy. <laughs> but tell us a little bit as uh, for those of you who have not heard of Chris's name, you've heard of several of the things he's done, especially if you live in Irvington because he is the owner of the Mug, an absolutely fabulous place to eat, which my kids love and I love and I wish we were sitting in at this very moment because pork fries sound really good. Chris, thank you for coming on the Leaders and Legends podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, it's very kind of you to do so. You have a remarkable background, which is peppered both with incredible achievements, and as you've put it in various interviews, uh, learning points. But please talk to us a little bit about where you're from, uh, where you went to college, and, and kind of your early career in business. I'm sure. Uh, I grew up in uh, western Pennsylvania, a small town north of Pittsburgh, uh, kind of a coal mining town on the Allegheny River. I mean, our town's job was to mine coal and send it down to the steel mills. Uh, Went to a couple of colleges, but graduated from Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. Um, Got a job uh, uh, for a medical company, Abbott Laboratories, uh, in New York City. Um, So kind of bounced around there. I was there for about five years and Lived in Dallas, Chicago, Buffalo, New York, um, back to Chicago. Met my wife, who's from Indiana. We moved to Connecticut with another company, R.R. Donnelly. Um, Spent a year or so out there and um, decided I did not want to be 52 years old riding that train every day. And the opportunity, uh, you know, before we had kids to get out of there and figure out a different path for our lives, uh, um, happened then, and we moved to Indiana in the early 90s. Western Pennsylvania is known as the cradle of quarterbacks. Yes, it is. Uh, uh, you may have heard of some of these names. Dan Marino, Jim Kelly, Joe Namath. Joe Montana. G- G- Joe, uh, uh, Terry Hanratty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Did you know any of them? Do your paths cross? You would have been more contemporaries with a Montana, a Marino, or a Jim Kelly. Obviously, name us a bit older. Um, yeah, so Jim Kelly was probably the closest. I only met him once. Uh, he came from a very small high school um, that was even smaller than ours. Uh, it'd be like where I live in Greenfield. It would be like him coming from Eastern Hancock. 
Um, but I can remember reading his name in the paper and things like that. And then our paths overlapped in Buffalo a little bit. Um, I was just a lowly worker bee in a company and, you know, he was Jim Kelly, but I actually did, uh, <laughs> did go to, um, I went to one tailgate that his family had, um, uh, um, during one of the games, I can't remember which game it was, but, uh, they lost, he was upset. So I didn't really get a lot of interaction with him, but I talked to his brother for a long time. And is, was college something that you thought was going to be in your DNA to begin with, um, you 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 had a what I think you would describe as a as a non traditional sort of tough upbringing, which quite frankly has been something that people have touted in that area of Pennsylvania. As you know, I grew up tough, working class, blue collar, learned work ethic, that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, ours was a, you know pretty dysfunctional family, um, um, and uh, you know I really just wanted to get out, um, and uh, so college I knew it was a path to get out. I um, was very fortunate. Um, I met someone when I was young, like 12, 13 years old. I would hang out at our local YMCA who uh, um, uh, had a kayak. Um, this was like a 30-year-old guy, and, and, um, and he taught a couple of us how to paddle whitewater kayaks. And, and um, that led me to get jobs as being a whitewater kayak river guide, which got me out of my town and, and around a lot of people that um, came from a different world than I did. Um, you know, at the time, most whitewater kayaking people were kind of Ivy League, well-educated, um, you know, Dartmouth, you know, sure. people like that. And, um, and uh, so, you know, hanging around those folks, I realized that in spite of the fact that I had, you know, a 0.2 grade point average in school, um, you know, those people weren't that much smarter than me. And, um, you know, it was just really kind of inspirational to me to say, hey, you know, these, they're, they're, they're not better than me. I can do this. And Well, you certainly, and we're going to talk about this uh, in a little bit, but you certainly have a love of outdoors to this day. Is that kind of when it started? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I'm not really like a lot of my folks back home and folks I'm still close with are, are hunters and things like that. And I've never really hunted or, or anything, but, you know, I, I did, you know, start to care about the environment and, you know, being outdoors and, you know, we climbed and paddled and skied and, you know, a lot of the recreational opportunities we don't have right here in Indianapolis anymore or at all. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, I think that really gave me appreciation for the environment and, uh, you know, kind of, you know, indirectly led to the farm work we're doing now. How much did my brother was in the army. He's about your age, actually. 59 ish. Yeah. And he left and he was stationed out at Fort Lewis mm -hmm. in Washington state. Sure. He's never come back. No. Well, he I have two kids there. there. I have a son <laughs> who's going to Evergreen, which is in Olympia, Washington and, uh, and a daughter who went to Pitt and goes to, or lives in Portland. And I don't know if, well, we have to go see them. They're not coming home a lot. So. <laughs> and he, you know, it was something like the, the great Northwest was somewhat foreign to us, not only as a family, but kind of, you know, the Midwest, who the heck goes out there? Yeah. But he was stationed out there, lived in Olympia, lived in Lacey. Yeah. And just absolutely fell in love with that part of the country. What about that part of the country changed you, shaped you, and really kind of reinforce this love of outdoors because if you like to be outdoors the pacific northwest is where it's at well it's great in that respect it's um you know you could ski pretty much year round you can ski and paddle and go to the beach all in one weekend if you wanted to um but what really transformed me out there was the evergreen education 
Um, I had gone to a traditional school, um, uh, you know, uh, did not do well in high school, snuck my way into probably the worst college in Pennsylvania, um, flunked out of that, um, took a year off, worked as a ski patrolman all winter in a river guide, um, and somebody had taught me about Evergreen. And so I really didn't intend to go to the Pacific Northwest as much as I wanted to go to Evergreen. And Evergreen is, um, there's no really, there's no grades. Um, it's a very Socratic method. You know, you have mm. seminars. Uh, you know, you have to read and write and speak. And, um, and those are things I could do fairly well. I couldn't test. And, and uh, um, you know, the, the whole atmosphere is designed for a little bit of an older student. You know, I graduated at 24, and I was, you know, I think the average age of the entire school was around 24. So there were 25, 26, 27, 28-year-olds, people that, that um, you know, had, had come from somewhere else usually and, um, and, and either had some life experiences or other college experiences. But, um, you know, the student was a customer. Um, and, you know, what's best for you, Mr. Customer, <laughs> is mm-hmm. exactly how you felt. And, uh, you know, you would sit around and you'd have these seminars and maybe there's 15 people in your group and, and you know, it's not class is going to be on Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday from 11 till 1. It's what works best for everybody. Let's talk about it. Let's decide. All day Saturday, great. Is it easier for everyone to meet two weeknights, you know, and, you know, that kind of thing, that you were treated like an adult, you had adult responsibilities, um, you know, for the group and for, you know, I, I, I felt very well prepared when I got out of school. I got my job with Abbott. Um, I was in a training class of 27 people, um, everything from junior military officers to, you know, college graduates. And, and, um, and I felt actually more prepared than anyone and, 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 uh, wound up, you know, the first year, you know, we were in sales and I was the number one salesperson in the country. Did it, Did the experience in having a college education, a higher learning experience, it seems almost like it's customer service where it's flipped. Did that translate? Has it translated? And we'll get into your, your business success here in just a few minutes. But it seems like, okay, what works best for you? What's the best way that make you happy? What's the best way to make you succeed? Is that something that you've carried over both the cluster truck and exact target and other things you've done? Well, I think so, you know, but I also think that, you know, you were taught to think, right? And, you know, um, you were responsible for your own things, and you had a reading list that was a mile long, and, and you know, big important books of the day that you would have to discuss and have an opinion on and write papers on and, and um, be very, very thoughtful, as well as um, be able to speak and defend your position and, and, you know, have a point of view. And I think those are the things that have helped me become who I am today. And it's a heady time to have that sort of education. Late 70s, early 80s, there's a lot happening in the world. Uh, what were some of the issues that that really caught your attention back then intellectually? Well, it was interesting because, you know, Evergreen is a liberal arts college, and I always like to say with a capital L. Um, <laughs> you know, it is, um, you know, Ronald Reagan had become president, uh, El Salvador, uh, you know, the Contra War, um, and you know, freeze. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, and, 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 um, you know, there I was, and I don't even currently have much of a political affiliation, but, you know, um, you know, I, I had started to develop some free market ideas and, you know, being out there and seeing, 
um, you know, like extreme liberalism and understanding them and knowing those people, I think have helped me just generally. How do you get along with all kinds of people? How do you bring folks together, you know, with completely different worldviews than you might have? Um, we did a lot of travel. Um, I worked a, a semester on an archaeological dig in Israel, um, you know, during the 1981 invasion of Lebanon, yeah. you know, uh, you know, so there was kind of a war going on when we were there and, and, uh, you know, it was just the whole experience, you know, I think just helped me become a more worldly, open-minded, um, you know, well-educated person, the goal of college, you know. So. You mentioned earlier about, <clears throat> I kind of brought it up first, tough upbringing, and you mentioned that your performance in high school wasn't that great. You snuck into the worst college in Pennsylvania, which we won't ask you to name. No, thanks. <laughs> and, I'm sure it's better now. <laughs> and is there a Bagot building yet at one of the... No, the no, no. Uh, that you didn't do well there. At what point did you have to really fight off a sense of despondency or a lack of direction? Like, what am I going to do with my life? Because it's tough when you keep getting these hammer blows as you're trying to, be, A search for your purpose and, and be sort of like justify the expense of these, of these endeavors. Is it, was it just tough to say, look, I'm going to find something I'm really, really good at. I just need to keep working at it. You know, I, I am, um, um, pathologically predisposed not to look backwards, um, not to really see or hear obstacles, you know, um, there was an article in a magazine. They talked to my wife, and, and the article was like, "Amy is still bewildered by her husband's optimism." You know, <laughs> but um, you know, we just ran through these assessments um, uh, here uh, for some of our folks, and I took it just for kicks. And the the person doing the assessment was just like, "Oh my gosh, you are like the most off the chart in some of these characteristics we've ever seen." But I am very optimistic. Um, I'm, I'm, I think part of my upbringing taught me a lot of self reliance. Um, so I'm very confident in, you know, and I'm happy digging ditches. So if that is what happened, you know, I probably would have figured out a better way. You know, I don't know. But it's, uh, um, you know, I'm, I, I think I'm very fortunate that I don't, um, don't dwell on mistakes, including things I might be saying here right now. That's <laughs> <laughs> we edit those. Okay. <laughs> well, we'll see. You um, met your wife out in? In Chicago, yes. We were both worked for the same company, R. Donnelly. And she convinced you to come back here. She actually was kind of opposed to it. Um, um, you know, she comes from a small town, Greenfield, where we live now. Um, her dad was like the town doctor. And, um, you know, like I said, the train, the traffic, the cost, the expense, you know, people talk about quality of life, even in the Pacific Northwest. I mean, I look at my daughter and be like, oh, there are those mountains. But, you know. It's also an hour and a half to get from A to B. Yeah, I mean, they have ski paths, and they take full advantage of it. She has a boyfriend, and they really, but they're young. They're 26. They're, they're, you know, but, you know, I came to see that my aged people, they're not going to the beach every week just because there's a beach an hour away. They're doing the exact <laughs> same activities I am. Um, and one night we came home, and it was maybe Labor Day, and we had visited our parents over the weekend, and it was beautiful fall in the inn, and people were nice, and passing through the airport, have a nice day, and... And get off the plane at night in LaGuardia, and everyone's dressed in leather, and there was literally a fight at baggage claim where one guy was beating another guy with a trash can, and it's raining, this cold rain, and it was just like a sign, like, let's get out of here. 
And, um, you know, I had, had been nurturing this idea about dry cleaning and, um, and, uh, um, you know, just out of random sense of events, I kind of thought I'd go back to Pennsylvania and, um, and my mother-in-law was having a plumber work at her house and she was having a conversation while the plumber was under the sink. Like, can you believe my son-in-law Chris wants to start a dry cleaners? And guy popped his head out from under the sink and says, I work for a guy who's retiring that wants to sell the dry cleaners. And honestly, that's how we wound up back in Indiana. Why dry cleaners? Well, in the day, um, back in the early 90s, pre-internet, a very popular entrepreneurial thing to do was a roll-up. You'd take these small retailers and roll them up into bigger retailers. And um, Blockbuster Video started with one kid in Dallas that had a video store. And then he kind of bought out his neighbors. Then he bought out people in Houston. Hmm. Then he created a stock. And then he would use that stock to buy other and that's how that became, you know, a big thing that Wayne Heisinger eventually bought and then turned into what became really Blockbuster. Um, in Indiana- Indianapolis, uh, Indiana, we had a, um, a company called LCI that was rolling up um, funeral homes and cemeteries. My father-in-law had actually owned a cemetery um, just as a side investment, and he kind of set his parents up there. It was in Evansville. and A doctor owning a cemetery. <laughs> Is there a conflict of interest there? <laughs> in the social media world, probably. But, but it was a really nice thing for him to do with, for his parents, actually. Um, they had a nice life there. They lived there probably 20 years and sold crypts and graves, and you know, uh, it really gave them a good quality of life. But then he was acquired by LCI as part of this whole roll-up. So... You know, I looked at dry cleaning saying, hey, it's a mom and pop business. Um, my career had been in, um, in primarily data-driven marketing and, and with Donnelly in the catalog business. And so I knew the value of data and the customer's name. And, you know, and I thought, man, you know, McDonald's doesn't have any idea who the customer is. But, you know, I go into a dry cleaner and they know I'm Mr. Baggett and that I live on Maple Street and that I'm back on Tuesday and... I thought, wow, there's a real opportunity here to bring this industry into the 20th century and um, really leverage this data to be, you know, a marketing driven dry cleaner. I was wrong, but, you know. But why were you, did you start this business as early 90s? Right. Take over this business. Is it fair to say, is that about the time that sort of business casual started to take over? Oh, the office it was a nightmare. Place? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean, look how we're and we're on radio, but look how we're dressed now. Like, you know, I literally got into the business the last day people wore neckties. Um, <laughs> you know? And uh, um, I, I mean, that's just the truth. I mean, it was the the absolute worst time to get into the business. Um, I knew nothing about it. It turns out everything about it I don't really like. Um, it's a lot of machinery and mechanical work. Um, I didn't understand how to manage people. I'd never really managed, you know, 50 employees who were hourly wage people. You know, it just was a, it was quite the learning experience. I mean, it was nine years. When people ask me one of the benefits of working from home, which I do, my, one of my first answers besides food costs are already consumed (laughs) is I don't ever have to dress up. Yeah. Like I only wear a suit or a jacket or dress pants when I'm told to. And if a, a client or somebody I'm meeting says, you know, yeah, let's get together. I almost, almost immediately text back, what's the dress code? Mm-hmm. And I had one of my clients ask me, they go, why? And I'm like, because if I put on a jacket, a pair of pants and a shirt, that's 10 bucks. Yeah. And they go, you're kidding. I'm like, 
no, margins are thin in the PR world. <laughs> and so it is an important consideration. Dry cleaning can be very expensive. How do you think that dry cleaning companies stay afloat in 2020? Well, um, talking about dry cleaning still kind of gives me the shakes. So it's like, a, I don't mean to joke about Pia post frantic, so I won't. But, uh, you know, it's like it really is literally like I can't drive to certain areas of the south side where we were located without getting like nervous, you know? I mean, it's a, it's a real thing. Um, I have no idea how dry cleaners make it now. And I think really the ones that are successful and I think the reasons why a chain of dry cleaners never evolved, and there were lots of us that tried it, um, is because it is a very hands-on service business and it's very hard to farm it out. I mean, dry cleaning is in fact a craft. And, um, you know, you have a hundred pairs of pants that need to be pressed and every, every one of them is different. They're different fabrics, different sizes, lined, unlined, pleats, two pleats, one pleat, you know, and there's a quality decision that has to be made, but the consumer really, you know, can't afford to pay what it really costs, you know? So the successful dry cleaners are really like the Milto family. They do an amazing job. I mean, they have a great family business and they all work in it and, and they're there every day and, you know, it, it, you know, it scales to a point to supply them a very high quality of life, but it doesn't scale to the point where they're going to be the next McDonald's. Last question I promise about dry cleaning. Okay. <laughs> if you could go back now with all your success and all your knowledge and all your experience, do you think you could make that dry cleaning company work? No. And the reason why is, is really it comes down to understanding what you do best, what you're passionate about. And, um, and, and, you know, what I learned from that experience is how to surround myself with people that offset my weaknesses, right, that allow me to do what I do best and contribute what I do best. But, you know, I'm much better as a team player than a, than a solo, you know, you know, a football teammate versus a golfer i guess is a no that makes sense you know, um you know so it was a great valuable experience um all the way around i mean we went bankrupt you know it was but you know. from that came greater success and we're going to get to that in just a second you are listening to leaders and legends a podcast presented by veteran strategies a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by girl scouts of central indiana garmond construction the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We are talking today with Chris Baggett, who's had a phenomenal career right here in central Indiana. Chris, thank you again for coming on. Sure. According to the research that I did when preparing for this podcast, um, perhaps it was a sign you put in your dry cleaning window that sparked much greater success later on. You want to talk about what that sign was? Yeah. You know, I mean, the, the problem became no internet. Um, well, the internet was just evolving, but we had built this database. So the whole part of the data, part of the dry cleaning work, like when I did this, I wrote a 50 page business plan and never once mentioned anything about pressing pants. And that is the business. It's a 70, 75% labor business. You know, I mean, I basically just wrote a marketing plan for a business. And 
So we built this database. We had to wire all the stores together, you know, and they had to be hardwired at those days, you know, with real like dedicated phone lines that were $150 a month to just to get one store to talk to another store. And we did home delivery then. Um, and the data was really insightful. I knew that I had to get a new customer to three visits to even call them a customer. If I didn't get to that third visit, 89% of the time I would never see them again. I knew that a customer that spends $100 a month, if I haven't seen them in 10 days, I'm losing them. I need to do something, right? Um, I could geofence my customers to say, wow, they, you know, they don't come from a radius. Like, you know, and our marketing tools at the time were like, Valpax, you know, and hey, we'll do a <laughs> radius of three miles from your store. Well, my store's on 135 on the south side. All of my customers come from south of 135 in a very tight little V, driving up 135 on their way home or back, you know, back and forth to work. And, you know, what do I do? And um, as a small business that was going broke, um, didn't really have any way to leverage my data. And, um, you know, I um, was an early internet adopter. I was on Prodigy. I was on CompuServe um, and AOL. And eventually, you know, I started communicating with my friends on AOL and reconnecting old relationships. And so I put a sign out on my counter, a little sheet. Hey, do you have AOL? Sign up here and we'll send you AOL email. And people signed up with Yahoo and MSN and Hotmail. And you know, I rapidly, you know, had to learn all about what those were. And how did you then take the next step. It's one thing to use that for your dry cleaning business and and it's certainly the internet and its usage was in the embryonic stage at that point. But at what point did the light bulb pop on that goes, this can be scaled up in a way that I never considered when I wrote that sign? Well, and, you know, I don't look back and I don't look too far ahead either. Um, you know, um, journey of a thousand miles <laughs> begins with a single step. So in this case... I started emailing, and, and instead of AOL, because AOL limited you to 50 people on a list, so that didn't work after a while, I had Outlook Express. Microsoft had this floppy disk web-building tool called Front Page. You probably remember it. It's like uh, talking about black-and-white television. It is. I mean, it's, again, you, you know, I, it, uh, what's, what's that Malcolm Gladwell book about, you know, the 10,000 hours? But I'm very, very lucky that my 10,000 hours happened to be in data-driven marketing at the onset of the internet. I mean, that is so unbelievably fortunate for me, right, that I was right there at the right time with the right background to put this together. But um, um, so I started doing this, and I'd send out these newsletters, and I'd segment my list and all the things I'd talk about. Instead of sending 2,000 people a dollar off sweaters, let me send $6 coupons to the person who I need to get a second visit from. And then another mm -hmm. bigger incentive. So same budget, but much higher focus on who I really want to reward to get to that third visit, right? Or reward that customer who's in danger of defecting. Um, I went to a dry cleaning conference um, and there were a few of us, uh, yeah, pathetic and sad, but social. I'm laughing. <laughs> First, that's, that's impolite of me. Sorry, no, but I'm just right. trying to imagine what a blast was it like just the beginning opening scene in Animal House? Just well, everybody um, partying. There's a yeah, everyone's seventy and and <laughs> and and thirty, right? And all the seventy year olds are trying to sell their businesses to us thirty year olds. And all of us thirty year olds that were unfortunate enough to buy dry cleaners one night were sitting around at a bar at a table, and there's four or five of us, and just like oh my god, looking at our glasses and 
you know, how did we ruin our lives this way? <laughs> and, um, you know, is anything working? And I started talking about this email because the fact is the emails worked really well. It worked. I mean, the customers responded. It was a very bad dry cleaner. Um, and the emails solicited a lot of complaints. And, and, you know, I realized the value in that, right? That, you know, they always say happy customer will tell five people how happy they are. An unhappy customer will tell 25 people how unhappy mm -hmm. they are. And if I could channel that dissatisfaction back to me and give me a chance to fix a problem, you know, there's no customer like a, like a, a, a good customer that had a problem that you fixed for them. And, um, and so that all worked really, really well. So I was just talking about this email that I'm doing. And so they started collecting lists in their cleaners and they would send me the lists every week and I would basically repurpose my newsletters and put their branding and their from address to it and send it to their list. And that became a little bit of a, a business that was more fun and profitable and interesting than the dry cleaning business to me. So that's kind of how it started. There must have been a certain point where you pitched this, the idea of the importance of data and the utilization of data to others. Do you remember that moment and, and kind of what people said in the article that I read, one of several actually, kind of about your life and, and how you got to where you are today and your interests? You got some pushback from people involved in your dry cleaning business, your initial business, about the fact that you were uh, emphasizing things other than starch, no starch. Press, no press. Oh, well, but, you know, my, my, some of my people, uh, you know, they're like, uh, hey, we're here, you know, and, um, and, uh, you know, we need you. And it's, it's, it's always a tough problem, right? You know, you got to spend your time where it's most valuable. Um, and, uh, but, you know, uh, the person that you're probably referring to still works for me. And, uh, oh, good. You know, yeah. She's been with me 27 years and, you know, she was manager at the dry cleaner and now she's running our, our entire farm operation. So, um, and so the point I think you're making is, is I, it was a legitimate concern of hers. Oh, it's a, always a legitimate concern. It's, um, um, you know, but again, you know, I, I have a, a little bit of a shiny complex where, you know, I, I'm going to do what interests me most. And also, you know, what's most valuable, um, you know, what, what is the most valuable use of my time? And, um, you know, so that's kind of the focus. And, you know, like I said, the dry cleaning, um, uh, you know, was a nice launching pad for exact target. And that led to other kinds of small businesses that, you know, but, you know, also, you know, as I tell my kids, you can never overt network, right? You can never know too many people and, and, you know, always take people seriously and always listen. And I had a driver, um, uh, Larry Zori, great guy. And, um, and, uh, and Larry, um, was driving for us, but he was also a big online gamer. And, um, driving for cluster truck, driving for dry cleaners, dry cleaners, dry right. Cleaners, okay. And, um, you know, not making much money and, um, and, uh, but he was into this online gaming. So now, you know, fast forward, we're into 1997, 98, maybe. And, um, to be an online gamer in the pre-internet days, you went to a, or pre-broadband days, you went to an internet cafe, right? And, um, and so he, yeah, we go to this netheads up in broad ripple and, yeah. And um, but he started an ISP, Internet Service Provider, back in the early early days with another gentleman, and and um, it was called NetDirect.net. Um, it was how I first got out of AOL and onto the internet. Um, 
but Larry was the one that said to me, you know, this email thing you're doing, you ought to turn into software. And I was like, huh? And, um, and uh, he, they had been acquired quickly for a lot of money. Um, so, you know, suddenly he's a millionaire, you know, and, you know, that's just the very beginning of the Internet. And that was a roll up, too. Companies were going around buying up all these small ISPs. And, um, and when they did, they, they, um, um, Larry came and he's like, look, um, I've got these two guys, Ben Timby and John Hurley. Um, and they were basically engineers and developers, not, and he's like, these guys only want to do web hosting. They don't want to code. And so these guys are free and you have this momentum going with what you're doing manually. You should talk to them and build software with them. And, you know, that was Larry's idea. Thank you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and um, but, you know, John Hurley now runs Union 525 and is wildly successful um, and, you know, had equity stakes. And I've lost track of Ben, unfortunately. I'm not sure where he is. But, uh, you know, we were doing this in, in John Hurley's house. Um, he had a baby and a wife. And, you know, we would be knocking on the door at 7 o'clock in the morning. And she'd hold the baby like, what the heck are you doing here? And, <laughs> You know, and, uh, you know, by then, um, you know, Scott Dorsey was my brother-in-law, uh, is my brother-in-law. And, uh, you know, Scott had gone to Kellogg in, in Chicago MBA school. He had, had a good career in sales. Kellogg, that's Northwestern. Northwestern, yeah. Um, and he joined a company called Divine Interventures, which was kind of the early, almost a little bit what, what Scott's doing now at High Alpha, but probably a little ahead of its time back then. We're sort of incubating these startups and... And, um, and um, you know, in those days, now we're into 99, early 2000, you know, that those things were wildly valued, right? You know, I always tell the joke that, you know, it's like having your relative join the NFL. You know, I thought, <laughs> I, I thought I'd get a car out of it, right? I'm like, I won't get a house. When he joined this company, I was like, I, I bet I'd get a car out of this, you know? Um, and then, of course, the whole dot-com bubble collapsed. Um, we had come and moved to Indiana, um, uh, my wife, Amy, her other sister had also moved back to Indiana. They were in Texas. And, um, and so Scott and his wife, Aaron were in Chicago and he was suddenly unemployed. And Aaron, I think was kind of compelled to say my whole family's home, let's go back to Indiana. And again, just timing worked out perfectly. Um, um, Scott, well, I got this thing going, you know, and, uh, you know, we talked about it and he joined it and, you know, and that's when we really decided to make it a, a, a real big company. And that company is exact target, exact target, right. Which revolutionized certain aspects of, of data and data usage. I know here in Indianapolis it did because I had a bunch of clients and a bunch of people I worked for and they all used it. Yeah. All of us used it. Was there a point where you thought it wasn't going to be a success? And when did you know it was a success? <laughs> That's a great story, too. Um, yeah. So it always worked. And, you know, it, we, we had good momentum. You know, we kind of started with small businesses. We worked up into franchise organizations. We worked up into enterprise. Um, we built a great team, you know, um, you know, we were, we were, we were very lucky that we knew enough, but there were so many things that we weren't encumbered by institutional knowledge. 
And we had big, big funded competitors. You know, the year we started with, I think, $15,000, Responsys was funded for $75 million, which is the equivalent of like $400 million today or something. I mean, it was massive really? money. Um, you know, Silverpop, $30 million that year. There was a company called eDialog that was publicly traded. Um, there were lots of Siebel systems, epiphanies, um, big enterprise systems. But um, our little small business disruptive approach, focusing on data, you know, was really, really helpful. Um, you know, uh, our competitors were all about horsepower. I can send two million emails in four minutes, you know, and like, you know, I can remember going into Home Depot and, and they're like, you know, we have a list of three million emails and we want to get to 30 million emails by next year. Can your system handle 30 million emails? And of course we could not. Um, Wild Birds Unlimited, I think, it just tried to send like 25,000 through us and brought us to our knees. But, um, <laughs> but um, you, know, you know, we were able to turn the conversation around to data. Like, what are you trying to do with this channel? And, and, and who are you talking to and why? And the reality is the next year we took that 3 million down to about 1.6 million. And so they did less email the next year. And, um, with and higher return. With much higher return because we were really the only ones out there focused on data-driven communication and the right message to the right customer. I went to see Mary Kay Hughes last year at Dreamforce, um, who is DePa grad um, and, uh, you know, rose super high up into exact target and now, you know, I always say sits on the right hand of Benioff. But, um, um, but she's done great. But anyway, it's just fun to see her at this conference speaking to thousands of people saying right message right time, right customer, you know, and, uh, you know, exactly the language we were using back in 2000. There's a saying that you create your own luck. You've talked a little bit about being lucky and certainly the temporal connection to everything else that was happening in the business world and beyond was, was a catalyst for you. But how did you create your own luck? Put yourself in the position to be there when it happens. Well, for one thing, um, you know, I tell us to a lot of entrepreneurs, one of the problems is, you know, or opportunities I had was I was desperate, right? I mean, Scott was unemployed. If he had a better offer coming out of the, let's call it the dot-com recession, he probably would have taken it, right? Sure. Chris Baggett, dry cleaner, uh, email thing selling to dry cleaners is uh, like the best offer he had, right? Um uh, you know, so a different time that might have not been that opportunity. Um, you know, we didn't have anywhere else to go. You always think of that Richard Gere, an officer and a gentleman. You know, yeah, I got no other. Yeah. I got no. You know, and I, you know, it becomes a problem. You know, you think about startups today, and and um, um, you know, there are a lot of great opportunities to not do a startup today, right? Like you can go work for Salesforce, the best company in America to work for, and be super, super happy. And, and, you know, you, you become a little bit less hungry, but we were super hungry then too, right? We had to do something. This was working. Um, you know, so I think, you know, an entrepreneur needs to be opportunistic, right? Need to see the opportunities and put together all the pieces of the puzzle to hopefully come up with a better solution. And, and it helps to feel like you have nothing to lose. Who were some of the, before we we're going to talk a little bit more about exact target and its success, and because, and I'm going to bring that up specifically because of the tech industry, the tech boom, for lack of a better term, that's mm -hmm. happening right here in the Hoosier state. But who are some other entrepreneurs you've encountered who you admire or just say, you know, he or she gets it? 
Well, I mean, you know, again, we came up at a very fortunate time where, you know, Bill Godfrey and, you know, it started a primo and software artistry obviously had a long reach as far as, you know, I didn't know them well, but, um, you know, when I was talking about Exact Target and trying to get people interested, um, you know, someone kept pushing me towards Scott McCorkle. And, you know, Scott later, years later, became our CTO and then eventually CEO um, after Scott left Exact Target and Salesforce. And, uh, but um, great guy, but he was a software artistry veteran, though. So, and he was generous with his time with me, right? I mean, I had no right to even have these conversations, but, you know, people kept steering me towards him and I would keep bugging him. Let me ask you a question on that, just real quick. And forgive me for interrupting. No worries. Because this is something I wanted to ask you later, but I'm going to ask you now. I've talked to a lot of people who come from lower class, lower middle class backgrounds, desperate, or certainly non-mentorish type backgrounds. And one of the things I ask them both on the podcast and in private conversation is, how do you shake that mentality or have you ever shaken that mentality of, I don't belong here. I can't believe I'm here. I can't believe so-and-so knows my name. Is that something that you've been able to do or something you still struggle with? You know, as I mentioned before, my river guiding experience really helped me with this because at a very young age, and I'm talking 14, 15 years old, I'm responsible for people's lives and I'm telling them how to do it, right? So I'm talking to them, I'm engaging with them. um, So I meet people of all walks of life. My peers, as I said, for the most part were people who could afford to, you know, I mean, it was a blue blood sport back then. And, um, and, um, so, you know, I, I got to know all kinds of people and at a young age, being a leadership, you know, you're in a raft and everyone's soaking wet and it's pouring down rain in April and you're cold and miserable. What do you do? I'm the CEO of Lehman brothers. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? <laughs> and what do they do? You know, um, you know, it's like, you know, so that's a great equalizer in itself. And I also think, you know, just, my psychology is just, I don't care what people think of me that much in the respect that, that, you know, you're going to like me or not like me, you know? And so, you know, there's lots of conversations where people turn completely off and it's probably something I'm doing, but you just move on to the next one. And, you know, again, I've been fortunate enough to, to be able to, um, connect with enough folks that, you know, I can learn and, and, and put together a team, you know, that enables us to be successful. You've been successful multiple times on multiple different uh, platforms. Do you remember the man, the woman, the person who was nice to you when you weren't successful? Do you remember the people? I remember who everyone were- who's nice to me. That's that's another thing. I think probably from my childhood is just, you know, you're nice to me. Then that's all I need from anybody. But you know, I mean, this this man who taught me to kayak and taught me about the outdoors was not a relative. I mean, it, uh, his name is Bill Money, and uh, and and like I said, he he introduced me to this entire life that didn't matter where you came from, it mattered how well you skied or how well you boated or, you know, um, and, uh, 
and didn't even have to be like this world-class skier. I'm still not a great skier. I'm an adequate skier, but <laughs> you know, I can still go out and hang out with great skiers. And they, and I just got an invitation to go to Alta this winter again. And every year we go with these guys, we've been doing it for, and I usually only go once every two or three years, but you know, I mean, I'm always dragging up the rear and, you know, they find my company enough that they're willing to tolerate me. But um, no, but Bill taught me that. And, you know, it was funny. You were asking about the when did we know exact target was going to work. And, uh, you know, I was telling my wife this the other day because it happened um, recently with Cluster Truck. And and um, I can remember being at the MGM Grand and we were at this trade show. It was a franchise trade show. And we had a booth and, you know, and um, we were just doing really well. And I just remember um, walking through the hall and this was. 2001 or two and that david gray song babylon was coming on like every 15 minutes you know who um it's called babylon david gray and friday night you know anyway um but every time i hear that song i remember walking down that hall and it's like a trigger of like i knew this was going to work like i was like this is going to be special you know and i still get a little goosebumpy about it but you know that that song is like me driving in the south side past my old cleaners you know only on a positive <laughs> got some endorphin you know that's like it's like i could just still remember that and and when you know we just had this recent kroger announcement you know and my wife said that's kind of a babylon moment and i was like absolutely she knew you know that 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 that's how we know we're going to talk about the kroger announcement its partnership with cluster truck exact target grew and grew and grew and had clients like coca-cola Home Depot, Nike, Papa John's, Gap. That's heady company. Well, but, uh, I had to, to be completely honest and transparent here, you know, that was mostly Scott by those stages. You know, I'm a startup person and, you know, I left in 2006. So, mm -hmm. you know, my value add to the company was building the original team raising the original money, which Scott, you know, calls jokingly passing the hat. Like I'm very good at getting 10,000, 20,000, hundred thousand dollar checks. I'm not very good at big time fundraising. Um, you know, so, you know, when I was there, you know, we had venture funding, you know, we, you know, we, we had done our first round. We had been very, very successful. I can't remember what the revenue was when I left, but we had moved into the guarantee building, but, um, you know, I left to start Compendium in 2006 and, you know, a substantial part of that huge, huge growth happened after my watch. So just I don't want to take credit for things that I have no business taking credit for. Well, but, I appreciate uh, that. And Scott built an amazing team. And, you know, it's you know, this is all hard, right, that that every every stage of a company's life requires a different talent set. And, um, you know, and that's where Scott is just so amazing because he was great at the startup side and he was great all the way to the multi-billion dollar company side. And that's super rare. So when you guys have lunch, do you fight over the check? No, <laughs> I don't think so. I'm trying to think what we, uh, you know. or you just take him to the mug and say, I got it. Exactly. That's or else. Yeah. We're eating at home. So, but and that's uh, what I, <laughs> or a Jim Dandy. Yeah. In Greenfield. No. We yeah, are Grigsby Station in Greenfield. So Grigsby that's, Station that's in Greenfield. Where, yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, you left the company. You had a couple other ventures, but eventually it's Cluster Truck. Okay, first, who thought up the name? So uh, Matt Cormier thought of the name. Um, you know, um, I was having, and, and again, you know, these things come together from multiple, multiple data points, right? Um, you know, I remember having a conversation with Neil Brown 
um, uh, you know, who had pizzaology, still has pizzaology. And, and, uh, um, and, you know, we were talking about um, email marketing, and I was saying that I uh, had an idea for Papa John's that they should send out an email every day at like 3.30 in the afternoon where people can schedule because we had just launched this feature that you could actually fill out a form within the email. I was like, we should have this scheduler, right? So you're starting to check out of work. You're thinking about got this practice, that practice, after school, blah, blah, blah. Let's have a pizza delivered at 7 o'clock and let me schedule and pay for that in advance. And they never did it. And, um, and Neil brought up the point that, you know, at Papa John's, you know, they have food scientists that think of nothing but how does this pizza still taste good 45 minutes to an hour later. And um, he's like, my problem is I have this craft pizza. I don't like to see it going out my door because it tastes delicious for the first 10 minutes out of the oven. It does not taste as good 15 minutes later. I don't want to lose control of that. So we started talking about proximity, right? Like, okay, you got a mom that scheduled this and ordered it. If you could track her, you know, and know when she's going to be home. So yeah, I want it when I get home or something like that. So that, that was data point one, you know, and I was talking to Matt and Matt had a food truck, very popular food truck, scratch truck here in town. And we were talking about that and he was kind of talking about a brick and mortar. And he taught me this whole concept of a cluster truck being a group of trucks. And when one truck is out, um, that truck is going to make a dollar. When 10 trucks are together, all the trucks are going to make $2 each, right? Because that collective people want to eat what they want. So, you know, that sort of came together, learning about the food truck industry, you know, watching Grubhub go public in 2014 and, and you know, being so data centric. They'd be like, this is a crazy idea. Restaurants shouldn't do this because you're just basically giving away your customer relationship and they're going to take that customer relationship and sell it to somebody else. Right. And um, exactly what's happening now in the industry. So all these pieces came together to sort of form cluster truck. How much does your love of farming and your interest in farming broadly defined uh, influence Cluster Truck, its quality, and the services it provides? Well, I wouldn't be doing Cluster Truck if it wasn't from the farm. And we're, and I say we, my wife and I are incredibly passionate about it. Um, you know, I'm leaving after this to go to Patagonia um, and we're going to tour farms and we're, we're trying to become a savory hub. Uh, we just became the largest, I think, organic farm in Indianapolis or Indiana. Um, and, you know, we're trying to be a savory hub. And, you know, I think it's really, really, really important work. Um, you know, I think that there's a um, – agriculture is a mess. Um, um, pollution is real, right? You know, my niece has got glass straws for, for Christmas, right, because they're worried about plastic straws. And, you know, meanwhile, thousands of sea turtles are dying <laughs> – in the Gulf of Mexico because of agricultural runoff. Right. And, and it's like, okay, what's the alternative and who's creating that alternative? And, you know, what is this farmer to do? And, and, you know, the farmer is a victim in this system, right? Um, you know, the, the system and the policies in place that, that, um, encourage behavior that isn't good for them. The farmer isn't good for the environment. You know, I have pictures I haven't posted yet and I don't think I will, but road by my farm where, you know, every tree is being taken out of our county along roads, right, to get an extra 10 feet of corn. It's, it's insanity. So now just any buffer from the road and the ditches is being eliminated because of a policy that says, you know, we're going to pay you <laughs> no matter what happens to that corn. And, and, and it's like, okay, you know, you can argue about it. 
or you can try and create a different system. And, and that's really, I'm sorry, I get a little passionate about the farming because it oh, really is the most important work we're doing, um, you know, is how do, we, how do we influence a different kind of discussion and not just sit back and say, this is the only way to feed the world and, uh, and, and, and just succumb to it. And, you know, nobody is, nobody except for a few, like the Alan Savories of the world, are speaking up and saying, look, there is a better way to do this that's actually cheaper, faster, better for the environment, better for carbon sequestration, um, makes better food, and puts more money into the pockets of your community and, and, and your farmer. And uh, so, anyway, sorry, a little bit of a soapbox. Not at all, because I wanted to talk about farming because that's kind of how I first met you. And that's going back to Irvington, Mm -hmm. ordering a case of chocolate almond milk from your uh, market there. But you bought that strip in Irvington. Part of it is the mug. And I think in our one of our very first conversations, I confessed to how many times I actually shoplifted from the village pantry that was there when I was a kid. (laughs) Glad to know that there were no signs up saying young East side (laughs) punk needs to be apprehended for the almond joy he stole. Uh, Irvington is a terrific, terrific community. I went to Ohio high school. It's a wonderful, wonderful part of the city. Uh, The mug I hope does really well because nobody I know wants it to close. It's great food. But a couple of things you started up next to the mug didn't make it. As an entrepreneur, when do you decide, okay, I've got to pull the plug? Is it a tough decision for you kind of emotionally, even if it's easy financially? Well, it, it, it comes back to what I said earlier about um, um, it's not easy financially, right? It's, it's sometimes easier to keep trying, right? You know, and, uh, and um, you know, again, pulling out of there was a combination of you know, we just couldn't get the store right for the neighborhood, right? And, you know, a store there needs to be something between literally a double eight and a, and a um, Wildwood Market in Fountain Square, you know? And, you know, just that's a very tough thing to hit, right? Um, and, um, and we weren't that passionate about it. It was an outlier in our overall operation. It wasn't moving a lot of Tyner Pond product, right? What was great about the mug was, you know, most of our business at Tyner Pond, we sell online. People go to our website, TinerPond.com, and they order. I mean, our average order size is like $43. It's not like a half a cow. It's just order what you need. We'll bring it to you. And people order every week or every two weeks. And, um, you know, but they order things that they are comfortable cooking. And, you know, we're left with a lot of the animal that people aren't. So big pork shoulders and hams and, and every cow gives me 400 pounds of hamburger. And so opening the mugs really help balance that out. Now I can sell that excess pork as pulled pork and I can sell that hamburger as literally hamburgers to, you know, and that makes the whole business work. So the store didn't really fit. Um, and I met the um, Paul and uh, Neil Warner brothers who owned Kochek Coffee and Provider. And in, in, in literally, I had come to talk to them about a completely different business idea I had um, but talking to them literally for five minutes and they're like, we're from Irvington. We're really interested in Irvington. We've been looking for a spot. I was like, take these. And, and, uh, you know, and they're doing great. They've, they've hit the mark of, um, uh, you know, they have this strange bird tiki bar that is just going gangbusters where we were barely making it as barkeeps in, in, in Irvington. And, um, and they're opening a bakery and, and a roastery, um, where the grocery store was, that's going to be phenomenal. And they're great young men, and I'm really, really proud and happy to be working with them. 
you read a lot about or listen to interviews with with specifically musicians and they'll tell stories about how I was up at two in the morning and I started humming and that song eventually became, and they named some popular, amazing song that you're like, Satisfaction. wow, <laughs> exactly. Does that happen to you? You're, you're a self-professed idea, man. Uh, someone it who, who gets does. inspired. I mean, are you in the shower? Or are you asleep? You're brushing your teeth. You're in your car. Do you, do you have like a notebook or something handy where you just go, Hey, what about this? This now, you know, the, the, my wife's, what are you doing? Who are you texting? I'm not, I, I have an idea, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, it absolutely is how it happens for me. I mean, I read a lot. Um, I read all kinds of things, um, books, magazines, newspapers. Um, you know, I see, you know, again, this whole idea of cluster truck came from six different areas of experience I had put together. And I think it's what makes cluster truck, you know, we know it's the best solution out there for delivering prepared food. Um, and that comes from just a disparity of, of things kind of all suddenly falling into place. Airplanes are great for me. Um, you know, Wi-Fi has actually been kind of the bane of my airplane existence because now I have that distraction where it used to be, you know, I'd have these, you know, what are those composition books and just start ranting for a three hour flight, you know, 40 pages of gibberish that, you know, become something. You mentioned earlier about, we're going to ask a couple of questions and then we'll get to the final five questions that everybody gets. Ah. You mentioned earlier about starting exact target and it with $15,000, but they were bigger, more well-known, however you want to say it, better financed companies out there trying to do the same thing. Are you in the exact same situation with cluster truck as compared to Grubhub or Uber eats or those sorts of things? Are you repeating yourself with the same confidence that it's going to turn out the same way? Perhaps. Probably a little more confidence, actually. Um, um, but yes, I think it's very, very similar. Um, you know, um, you know, we're we're. Have you ever read any Clayton Christensen? You know, the Innovator's Dilemma. You know, and he talks a lot about disruption and how difficult it is for big companies, um, or if you know too much, to be a disruptor. Everything is incremental. You know, I tell the story a lot. I was in the catalog business, right? So come into the internet age, and you know, Sears was like number six on the Fortune 500 mm -hmm. in 1997, 98. Sears owned Prodigy, right? The way right. I first got online was through Sears, right? Um, it was a joint venture with IBM. Um, so why didn't they win, right? Because the internet was an incremental piece of their business, right? And What's happening in prepared food? Well, and so now you fast forward like to now the email era and these big, big companies doing email were mostly kind of part or strategically aligned to integrated marketing agencies. And again, it was all about starting at the top and then it was all about reach and frequency, right? And that was marketing, right? So if you're used to doing newspaper ads or, or newspaper flyers, um, then, um, you know, you think about reach and frequency. Um, and those companies weren't thinking about data. And, um, you know, whereas we started small and, you know, Bob Compton was a great mentor of ours. And he was always like, don't go anywhere that you can't drive to, you know, sure. Like let's, let's focus on, you know, Chicago. Let's not be flying out to New York or Los Angeles. 
Um, so those companies, they took what they already knew and they just tried to apply their, their existing strategies to new tools. And that's what you see happening with third-party delivery is, right? We're in the restaurant business. Maybe 15% of our business might be home delivery. We're going to work with this partner. And, you know, now you have all these stacked up middlemen and, you know, you've got third parties, you've got systems integrators, you've got these ghost kitchens coming out, right? So now I've got Mm -hmm. a kitchen vendor, I've got a delivery vendor, I've got these software vendors that, you know, and just a million different moving parts. And, um, you know, we're just quietly here in the Midwest saying, A, we're not going to get $100 million funding here, you know? Um, and not to say it's not possible. Obviously, we did with Exact Target. But, um, you know, we I brought, have, a, ch- I brought a check. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, we really thought, you know, we've got to find a profitable business model early on. We knew that, that costs were going to go down. These delivery companies live on commissions and delivery fees, right? And they are going to compete with all their VC money, and they're going to offer the customer free delivery. If we don't have the VC money, we actually have to develop a business model that supports free delivery, right? And that was whiteboard day number one. It has to be free, and we have to be able to support it, right, financially. And so here we are, the only company on earth with free delivery that makes a profit. Um, DoorDash, Mm. they need that delivery fee. That's the only – they make money on the transaction. If there's no fee, there's no point in them existing. Um, So – you know, you recently announced last question before we move on to the five questions. Uh, Cluster Truck recently announced a partnership with Kroger. Yes. Speak of another great Midwest company. Exactly. Talk to us just very quickly about what that means for you and how did it maybe come across as a validator? Well, you know, we we targeted Kroger um, and we went to them basically because one of the problems we have is we have to go into a new market and create a new brand. Never heard of Cluster Truck. I'm not driving by it on my way home from work saying, honey, we should try this new place. Um, so um, it's a much slower brand building process. So we started thinking about, man, if we had a partner that had already a big brand, that that might be easier for us. On the Kroger side, they're looking at it saying, you know, where's the puck going? They're willing to try and disrupt themselves, right? And if the consumer wants food prepared and they'll come to the grocery store and pick it up and they want food that I'm going to come and get the ingredients and make, or if they want that food cooked for them, well, they need to be in that business. And what's great about this is I think everyone is now recognizing um, that the third-party delivery model is not sustainable. It's not the way this game is going to finish, and, you know, both Kroger and Cluster Truck, we look out at the world and say, this field is wide open. You've got a massively growing customer base and demand, and nobody is happy with the incumbent solutions, right? So, you know, you go to Trustpilot and look at DoorDash, one star. Sure. Uber Eats, one star. So you've got, man, a growing business, and nobody's happy. The drivers aren't happy. The restaurants aren't happy. And the consumer's not happy. Well, that's catnip. So here's a company like Kroger that, you know, what are their sales? $129 billion a year or something. Unlimited resources, 2,800 kitchens already built, um, and the willingness to try and disrupt their own business. And, uh, you know, that's a, it's, it's, it's so far, I mean, we're a month into it, but it, it's, it's, it's a great partnership. And again, you mentioned the Midwest, and sorry to ramble on, but, you know, the fact is they do bring a Midwest sensibility. There's no ego about any of this. They're not 
hot shots, you know, funded with $400 million thinking they're geniuses. They're, um, they're smart, pragmatic, open-minded, and, and, and like I said, so far, knock on wood, they've been spectacular partners. And they expect to win. We expect to win. We expect that we will be the largest prepared food delivery company on the planet. Makes two of us. Yeah, thank you. Well, you know, does my Kroger card get me a discount at Cluster Not Truck yet. yet? We get that a lot. But, All you right, know, just checking. Yeah, this is early days. I'm a lo- right? loyal mm. Kroger shopper. Well, great. Well, where do you live? Cityway. Okay, so are, are you in the zone? Do you order, you know, order from Kroger? Delivery kitchen. If you're in Carmel or downtown. My um, diet is 80% Doritos, 20% uh, Oreos. Uh, uh, we got to change that. Order from Tyner Pond. <laughs> and uh, pork fries. Yeah. At, at <laughs> is the that a meat group? Yeah. And uh, I should shout out to my kids, Andrew and Anna, who love going there, especially for the uh, sweet potato fries. So oh. please don't ever change that right. menu Thank option. You. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran business enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmont Construction, the Crown Plaza Hotel and Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. We've gotten to the five questions part of the podcast. We are here with Chris Baggett. Exact target, cluster truck. Compendium software, don't forget that. Compendium Acquired software. by Oracle. It always slips away, but uh, most of the, well, a lot of this team <laughs> came from Compendium. So Proud uh, Kroger team member uh, and a person who's responsible for Rob Green on a daily basis. Rob Green changed my life. I mean, you just talk about random events, but, you know, if I know we're running out of time, but I will tell you that story someday, but he... He is fundamentally, his DNA is this company. And I jumped into a car he happened to be driving. Well, he's been a long, been a friend of mine for a long time. We wouldn't be talking to you without his grace and his friendship. And we're very appreciative. And he taught Chris Spangle how to be a quasi-Republican <laughs> many, many years ago. Question number one, what was your first job? My first job was um, washing windows at Carp's Jewelry Store in Catanning, Pennsylvania. So I was probably 11 or 12. What was your first concert? I think it was Yes or Carlos Santana, one of those, like 1973 or something. Yeah. Either one of those is pretty good. I still remember that Santana is the greatest concert of all time. I think he played till four in the morning. You know, I was a child. It was awesome. <laughs> I was listening to him earlier at the gym. Lighterfield with Alexander Lighterfield. Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you choose? I, I am, this gets back to my farming. But I am a big advocate that everyone should be reading Empty Planet. Um, It's a relatively new book. um, And, you know, a big excuse for our agricultural practices um, has to do with this concept of feeding the world. And in a United Nations study that has been debunked many, many times, but people talk about this popular, what are we going to do when we have 9 billion people, 12 billion people? And and we're not going to get there. There are no countries that are even except like the Congo that are even at replacement level, you know. Um, And this book does a great and scientific job of debunking this whole population bubble myth and talking about an even greater danger, which is population collapse. And, and, you know. The anti-Paul Ehrlich. Yeah, I mean, they're making a great, great case for like, you know, 
China, 1.1 billion people dropping to 650 million people in 10 years. Like, you know, and I've been to China twice and, you know, they're trying to get this two baby policy and that's not enough, right? You need 2.1. Nobody's doing it, right? They don't want two babies. Nobody, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's, um, it's a very real risk, but also the way I look at it from my agricultural standpoint is it's a, you know, the only, you know, Barry Goldwater said the enemy of Republic is the monopoly, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it's a union monopoly or a corporate monopoly. And the only place we're allowed to have monopolies is in agriculture, right? <laughs> and the excuse for that is we have to do this for this yield, this production, right? P- to feed the world. So I'm sorry about the sea turtles, but we have to feed the world. And as soon as you debunk feeding the world, you strip away their clothes. And now, now what are we going to do? Now we can open our minds to other alternatives. And that's the book. The book is, he doesn't talk about agriculture sure. at all. It's just, he talks about empty planet and really just talks about there is no 9 billion people. <laughs> like, it's not going to happen. Number four. That's catnip to you, Spangle. Mm-hmm. Might be our first Barry Goldwater reference on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Long Goldwater overdue. Goldwater is the founder of the modern Republican, right? You know, Ronald Reagan was the disciple of Goldwater, mm. and everybody is the disciple of Ronald Reagan, right? Up until maybe like, 2016. We like to think. Yeah. If you could Conscious witness, conservative. I mean, it's this big. It's a great book everyone should read also. If you could witness any event in history, which event would you choose? Be there as it happens. Probably the Revolutionary War. Like the founding of this, you know, this, this experiment. You the know, signing that, of the Declaration of Independence? I mean, I wouldn't want to be a spectator in anything, right? I mean, I just, it's not my nature. Like, you know, I'm not going to sit in the stands. But, um, you know, as a participant, you know, I think the revolutionary period was super interesting and very opportunistic. I mean, you take a guy like Alexander Hamilton and say, you know, talk about coming from rough upbringing to oh, sure. you know, get a seat at the table, you know, and Ben Franklin, you know, to become Ben Franklin from his humble beginnings. I mean, it's, you know, just just the opportunity for ambitious people and to create something brand new. Um, you know, that's been a popular answer, something something you know. related to that. Last question. If you could have dinner with anyone living today, two hours off the record, whom would you choose? I think Obama. Why him over? Well, you know, I, um, um, I voted for him, um, twice, you know, I was very, and still, you know, was against the war and the whole George Bush stuff was a big, I voted for him twice also, big, big disappointment for me, just this unnecessary waste of resources. Um, and, um, you know, I had really, really high hopes for Obama and uh, I was disappointed and I'd like to be able to talk to him off the record and be like, dude, what happened, right? You know. Well, that's like all of your answers has been very candid and very honest. And we're very grateful, not only to you, um, but to all entrepreneurs out there and everyone with an idea and everyone with persistence and everyone who's willing to share not only their knowledge, uh, but their mentorship. We often talk about leadership on this podcast for obvious reasons and the difference it makes in people's lives and through your leadership and through your willingness to take a chance you have immeasurably changed the lives of so many Hoosiers and beyond. 
Chris Baggett, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Thank you.